Romans chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege. We ask that you would direct our attention. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to see your word, the truth of your word, that we might see you through the word and be changed forevermore for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I assume that you are familiar with the geyser named Old Faithful. It's located in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. So now, the internet tells me that that is Old Faithful. Now, it could be some elaborate ruse where someone went over the crest of a hill with a fire hose and shot it up in the air and it's not actually Old Faithful. I can't prove to you that that's Old Faithful, but so far as I know, that is it. And... um, some, have, have, has anyone here ever visited Yellowstone National Park and seen Old Faithful doing its thing? Some of you have. Um, why is it named Old Faithful? Because every couple hours, guess what's going to happen? The statistics on it are it, it erupts every 35 to 120 minutes, between a half an hour, essentially, and two hours. It, it, it erupts. Um, and eruptions range from one and a half to five minutes, with a maximum height ranging from 90 feet to 184 feet. That's pretty impressive. Uh, while you can't know exactly when its next eruption will occur, you know that it will erupt within that two-hour window. It is named for its consistency. Apparently, even within Yellowstone National Park, there are other geysers that are bigger and erupt even more regularly. When it comes to faithfulness, statistics do no justice to the faithfulness of God. It is He who has established the heavens and the earth. Every molecule and planet are ordered by his hand. Before we can talk about how the Spirit produces our Father's faithfulness in us, we must understand the magnitude of God's faithfulness. And so we want to start our time together considering the fact, the fact that our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. We want to notice, first of all, that there are recipients to that faithfulness. And what we'll notice is it, it is of every, every person. First of all, I want us to notice in Romans chapter 3, these first four verses, a very important concept. Paul is going to establish, he's talking about the privileged position of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people who had the, the, the word of God entrusted to them. But in addressing that privilege, he lets us know, he lets them know, and he lets us know that whether or not Israel was faithful with that message, with that word that God had conveyed to them, God would remain faithful anyway. In Romans chapter 3, let's take a look beginning in verse 1. Then, 
What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's another way to say the the scriptures, the Bible, the, the word of God. What if some were unfaithful? Now, were some unfaithful? Yes, we, the, the testimony of Scripture is, is abundant in that regard. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's the answer, class. By no means. If you have a King James Bible, it says, God forbid. If you know the Greek, it says, me genoita. It simply means, in no way, in no shape, in no form can that ever be. Let it never People can be unfaithful as the day is long, and God will not cease to be faithful. His faithfulness is not dependent upon us. His faithfulness is dependent upon His very own character. And so we see to believers and to unbelievers, whether we trust Him or we don't trust Him, God is faithful. Verse 4 says, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is faithful. There's this great passage in the book, right right in the midst of of the the practical section of the book of Hebrews. It's just thrown in there in in the midst of three lettuce. lettuce. There's three lettuces in in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 26. One of the lettuces is verse 23. Listen to what it says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Why would we do that? For he who promised is faithful. What we know from that is God always keeps his word. We know that God is faithful. Everything around us can come crumbling down. Everything around us can seem to betray us. There's one who never breaks his promises. That's our Father. Our Heavenly Father is faithful to the end. He always keeps His Word. And I want for us to see this in the Scriptures for a few minutes. I want to invite you all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles, to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26. There's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. No, I skipped one, right? Leviticus... And then Numbers. We're in Leviticus 26. Now, if you have any background in studying Leviticus, which most of you may not, when you come to chapter 26, it's a rather dicey proposition. Because God is telling His people about His faithfulness. Now, the way he speaks about his faithfulness in Leviticus 26 is, I made a covenant with you. You do these things, I will bless you. You do these things, I will punish you. And God wants to let us know that he's faithful. He wanted to let the people of Israel know that he's faithful. In other words, he keeps his word. Well, that's good. When his promise is for me, yes, when we trust Christ and it means eternal salvation, that's good promise. When God says, if you violate my law, I will judge you, 
Well, that kind of feels not like that great of a, of a thing to be faithful about. But God wants to let us know He's faithful across the board. Leviticus uh, chapter 26, there's a lot to it. We're only going to look right at the tail end of Leviticus. Uh, take a look, please, at verse 43 and following. Leviticus 26 and verse 43. Sorry, I'm in, I was in chapter 25. But the land shall be abandoned by them. Well, what do you know about the land before we even get any further? Well, the land was promised to the Jews, right? And now God says the land will be abandoned by them. In other words, they'll leave the land. Why is that? And enjoy its Sabbaths. So the land will enjoy its Sabbath, Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Let's just take a break here for a second. God had commanded that they were to let the land lay fallow every seventh year to allow it time to rejuvenate. And the people said, eh, I like crops. I like the things that are coming out of that land. Rather than giving it a Sabbath, a rest, I'm going to keep planting in it. I know what you said, God, but I like my crops. They did this time and again, and God tells us he would take them out of the land. We see it take place in the Babylonian captivity. They were out for 70 years. Guess how many Sabbaths they had missed? 70. Interesting. It's interesting how that works. God says, give my land a Sabbath. No? Okay, I'm going to give my land a Sabbath. I'll do it my way. You'll be in another land. Now, you think, well, that just sounds like really um, oppressive and unkind. And what I'm telling you is it says that God keeps his word. Whether that is something that you like or whether that is something you don't like. He goes on, this is in verse 44, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. I will not turn away from them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly. Listen carefully. And break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. You know what he just said? First, he says, as a result of your disobedience, I will bring forth my, my judgment. Yes, but I will not forsake you because I made a covenant and I am faithful to my promises. And so God says, I won't forsake you in the midst of your punishment. I will not forsake you in the midst of judgment. I will not forsake you because I made a promise and I keep my word. Well, that's, that's good to see here. Now, in Lamentations, now if you don't know where Lamentations is, I'm going to give you a little break. It's going to be on the screen, and it's also in the front cover of your bulletin. We had it as a, as a responsive reading. But if you know where it is in your Bible, it's helpful. Take a look over there at Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is in the middle of the major prophet section. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. 
Lamentations chapter 3. It's a very familiar passage to many of us. Listen to what God says here in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In other words, he is, he is covenantly loyal, regardless of what takes place, and it's unending. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Will you say this next phrase with me? Great is your faithfulness. And so the response is, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. It is good. It is good. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There's a a verse in the Psalms and we have this in a picture in our, in our dining room. It says in Psalm 36.5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. See, God is not faithful when it's convenient. He's not faithful when He feels like it. He flat out is faithful. That's the end of the statement. He is faithful. He is faithful regardless. He is always faithful. In Isaiah 11.5, this statement describing the coming of our, our God, it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is who he is. He is faithful in every way. When Jesus returns to consummate the kingdom, God describes him coming on a white horse. And the Bible says the one sitting on it, that horse, is called faithful and true. See, this is who he is. Who is a recipient of that faithfulness? Well, in Romans, it's believers and unbelievers. In, in Lamentations and Leviticus, it's the covenant people of Israel. As, as you think about, about a statement in Isaiah, it's talking about all of God's people of all time. God is faithful. That's who he is. Now I want to talk just for a few minutes about aspects of God's faithfulness because there's some, some really important truths that we, we really should understand. First of all, God is faithful in dealing with our sin. God is faithful in dealing with our sin. In Hebrews chapter 8, he's... The the author of Hebrews is quoting the New Covenant passage back in the book of Jeremiah. And he quotes this section of it in verse 12. He says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Listen carefully. And I will remember their sins no more. There is not a better promise that you're going to hear today than God not remembering your sins. See, the Bible tells us that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that the, the wages, the payment for our sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we see God dealing faithfully with our sin to remove it so that he'll never call it to account. I'm As a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has trusted that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for my sin, to remove my sin, as one who believes that Jesus rose from the dead, triumphant over my sin, when I stand before my judge, Jesus Christ, he's not going to say, hey, I want to remind you about something. Remember on October 2nd, 2012, when you said this to your dad? I want to remind you about that. In fact, I'm going to put this on on the big screen And I want all the host of heaven to see how foolish you are. You know, there are some people that think that that's what the judgment day is going to look like. God's going to remind his people of their sin. Is that that the finished work of Jesus Christ on display when Jesus is reminding us that we were sinners as believers? That is not a correct perception of the judgment day. As one who has trusted Christ, my sin is removed forever. He has cast my sin as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed my transgressions from me. There is not going to be a calling to account of my sinfulness. Why? Not because I have earned some place or am so special that that I have gained this place. God has faithfully dealt with my sin. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to deal with our sins. Secondly, God is faithful in aiding us when we're tempted. This is good news, folks. Every day we experience temptation of one sort or another. And the Bible gives us this promise concerning God's faithfulness in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is what? And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word there has the idea of something still crushing down on you but bearing up under it. God doesn't say, I will make you have a temptation-free life. That's not what he says here. He says, I will, in the midst of your temptation, abide faithfully, and I will give you the opportunity not only to move away from temptation, but to bear up under the weight of temptation. God is faithful to aid us in the process of our temptation. You know, God is also faithful in bringing about our spiritual development. I want for us to take a look at this, please, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God is faithful in bringing about our spiritual development. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is coming to the very end of his, his letter to the Thessalonian church. And he utters this prayerful statement. He writes this prayerful statement, beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's to make you holy, to set you apart completely. And may your whole spirit and soul 
and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the passage ended there, we would be encouraged, I think. Right? Wouldn't you be encouraged if, if the book ended right there? You'd be like, all right. So he's praying to, that God would sanctify us completely in body, soul, and spirit. That would be an encouraging way to end. But you know what? God does us a better favor to kick it up another level for our rejoicing. It says in verse 24, He who calls you is what? Come on, say it loud. He who calls you is faithful, who also or surely will do it. He'll do it. God will bring about this sanctification of our body, soul, and spirit. God will do this. This is who He is. Pause. If you see no spiritual development taking place within you, should you notice that as a problem? Yes or no? Why? Why should it be such a problem for you if you're not developing spiritually? Might it point out that something is blocking the divine work? God's divine work always gets done, right? He always completes his tasks. He says he will be sanctifying us. The Bible says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will Complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. There, this will take place. If there's no development taking place, that should cause us to say, whoa, wait a second. Because the spiritual development is not firstly about me. The spiritual development is firstly about my God. And he is faithful and he does these things. So if there's no development... I might want to start saying, okay, Lord, what's happening inside of me? Why is there a short-circuiting? Am I just blocking your work, or do I not know you? What is the problem? Why am I not developing? Why is Christ not being formed in me? Why is Christ not being demonstrated in me? How come people don't see God's, your love in me, and your joy in me, and your peace in me, and your long-suffering in me, and your kindness in me, and your goodness in me? Why are they not seeing your faithfulness in me? What's the problem? God doesn't shirk his responsibility. He's faithful to complete them. So if there's something... If there's something not happening in your spiritual life, you need to start saying, okay, Lord, where am I short-circuiting the work that you always do and you do rightly? God's faithful in bringing about our spiritual development. You know, God is also faithful to guard us against the schemes of Satan. We're going to look at this. Take, take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to try to say this carefully, we should have two emotions towards Satan. There is a right amount of caution. A right amount of caution we should have toward the adversary of our soul. We should recognize the damage that he is capable of causing. The Bible warns us to flee from him, not to duke it out with him, not to say, oh, I'm going to have a, a demon-bopping parade today. I've heard that in my day. Um, 
not subscribing to that methodology, uh, there's, a, there's a certain amount of fearful consideration about what he can accomplish. That's one side. That's not the primary aspect that we want to consider. On the complete other side of the spectrum, we should have no fear of Satan. Why? If we know Christ as our Savior, he dwells within us in the person of the Spirit. If we put on the armor of God, guess what? We will stand against the wiles, the devices, the strategies of Satan. And beyond that, superintending over everything that takes place on this earth is our Father. And our Father presides strongly with His almighty power over His creation. That includes Satan. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, notice what it says beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God, or word of the Lord, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Listen carefully. Will you say it with me? But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Do I really have to sit back and quake in my boots about what Satan might try to do to me? No. Why should I have a fearful understanding of things? If I let my guard down and I think I've got this Christianity thing licked and I know how to do everything... If I just go out in my own strength, I am going to lose big time. Satan is a deceiver. And folks, we are like deception magnets. But not when the Spirit of God is dwelling and filling us. Not just dwelling. Dwelling and filling us. Controlling us. Our mind is inhabited by our great God and as we meditate upon the things of the Scriptures, guess what? Counterfeits are easily spotted, aren't they? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is what we need. But God is faithful to guard us against the schemes of Satan. Here's a really great point here. This is another aspect of God's faithfulness. We need this, folks. I know, I know, I know me. And if I'm anything like you, if, if, if we have anything in common, not all your days are lived out in faithfulness. Not all your moments would you be proud to share with your neighbor. Not every thought, not every word, not every deed you do is deserving, worthy of God's faithfulness. And so we need the truth of the gospel where God is faithful even when we are not. As a little jewel in the midst of 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Spirit of God works 
in Paul's life to produce this glorious testimony of Scripture. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What's he talking about here? What do you mean, deny himself? He's telling you, when you come to faith in Christ, you are Him. You're in Him. He's in you. You're united to Christ. He cannot say, I'm done with this part of myself. I'm finished with that one. I can't take another minute of this unfaithfulness in myself. When you are united to Christ, you're united to Christ forever. And the Bible says, if you are faithless, He remains faithful because He can't deny Himself. This is the great wonder of what God does through the Gospel of uniting us forever with His Son, which means, folks, He unites us forever with Himself because the Son and the Father are one. If I'm one with Christ... I'm one with the Father and one with the Spirit because they are three in one. This is good news. God is faithful. Knowing the extent of God's faithfulness sets the groundwork for understanding how His faithfulness must be displayed in our lives. It is essential to understand how God's supply of faithfulness impacts our relationships. It impacts our relationships. God's faithfulness must be displayed in our relationships. First of all, in our workplace, as an illustration. Take a look at Titus chapter 2. You're in 2 Thessalonians. Just keep going to the right. You'll go through First and Second Timothy, and you'll come to the small book of Titus. It's a great doctrinal book. It's a pastoral epistle, one of uh, a group of three books that are known as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, written to what we would consider, potentially we could call them apostolic representatives, those who went forth with the message from the apostles, establishing God's church in those early days, the first century. And Titus chapter 2, he's just finished speaking about the discipleship relationship in the church, how the older men and older women should be influencing the younger men and younger women of the church. And he starts to make some application of a specific element in verse 9. Look at what it says there. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good, what does it say? All good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What he's telling us is as we go to work and we're involved, now it's not the same as bond-servant relationships, but there's enough similarities that we can just apply it right to our workplace situation. As we go off to work, we have a responsibility to live out the Christian doctrine, to, to live out the character of our Father. We're adorning the doctrine of God, and, and it makes its way into our workplace. We are honest workers. We are hard workers. 
We do the best we can. We might not be the best worker. Someone else may outshine you. That is not the issue. It's doing your best. It is using your brain. It's using your body. It's doing all that is in your task and your ability to do is to do it well. In doing so, you demonstrate that the gospel has marked you. The gospel has marked you. There might be some, someone that doesn't have the gospel that works hard too. That's wonderful. Give them an attaboy. Say, I'm, 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 I'm glad how hard you work. You're, you're an inspiration to us. I'm working for the Lord. I'm working for the Lord. You adorn the doctrine of Christ. Notice how he uses, in the middle of verse 10, by, but showing all good faith. The word there can be translated faithfulness. Showing all good faithfulness. We are to bring this character trait of our God's faithfulness to work with us. I wonder where else it ought to be seen. How about in our home? Faithfulness in our home. Take a look, please, at Ephesians chapter 5. How many of you know a couple, a married couple, that made it 60 years of marriage? impressive, isn't it? Doesn't it impress us? 40 years of marriage. You know anyone? Some of you in here have been married for 40 years. That's good. It shows a degree of faithfulness. I've married many people in my tenure as pastor, and I take it seriously. I don't take performing a marriage ceremony lightly at all because marriage in and of itself is supposed to be a display of the gospel. And so I don't take it lightly. There is a couple, and obviously I'm not going to mention names, that, that I married and a couple of years into their marriage, I, I received a phone call. It was late. And uh, this brother in Christ told me that his wife was packing her things. I said, here I come. But I stopped in my office first. And I printed something out. We sat down at their uh, dining room table. I, I printed a couple of copies, three actually, one for me and one for each of them. We sat down at their dining room table and I, I said, I, I want to remind you of something. You lied to me. And you lied to the whole church. And you lied to God. What are you talking about? I want you to read. Can you read right here? You read these vows. You said these vows to your wife. You said them in the presence of God and these assembled witnesses. You read these words. Tell me what they say. And they went through. This, folks, is not what you promised. This is not what you promised. You violated your word. Now, not every couple would take that well. Some would say, you know, all manner of things they could say. We won't get into that. Um, that's not how they responded. By God's grace, that was like a dagger. A good kind of dagger. A dagger to their heart to remind them of what really was going on in that household that night. And years have gone by since that date. And they remind me about that. With fondness, folks. When we take a vow, 
We're not just, we don't take these things lightly. You're making a commitment. You are pledging your life. And what you're saying is, in sickness and in health. You know, folks, health has various ways it can be seen. There's physical health, there's emotional health, and there's spiritual health. And when you make a commitment before God that you will abide faithful to someone in sickness and in health, you are making a pledge that it doesn't matter if they've gone off their rocker and are absolutely loony and in the loony bin, or if they are adamantly against the things of the Lord, you made a commitment. Now, if they walk away, what can you do? Nothing. But you can't. You can't walk away. You made a promise. The Bible tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 5 a bit about marriage. In verse 22, the Bible says this, Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Verse 25, I'll tell you a stronger statement. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let me ask you a question, because so often in Bible circles, there's this, this thing about Husbands being the head and women being the meat. You know, oh, yes, yes, husband, whatever you say. And it, it, I think it's really distorted. I want you to think about this passage. And I want you to think about the two illustrations. And who has the greater responsibility? Did the church die for Christ? Does the church hold Christ up? And, and if the church didn't hold him up, uh, what would he do with himself? No. Christ died for the church. He's the Savior, right? He's the Savior. He holds the church. He's the foundation of the church. Who has the greater responsibility? Well, in the church, Christ's responsibility set up, Jesus does. And so, folks, it is in the home. It's not about, hey, woman, submit. It's about, I had better lay down my life and lead humbly, graciously, and lovingly, my wife. And it, this passage ends in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In between, it talks about how this is a reflection of God and his church. In our homes, faithfulness is demonstrated, first of all, by sticking it out, right? That's, a, that's an element of faithfulness. But there's more. You, you can stick it out for 60 years and be unfaithful in your brain. You guys can, can whip out your smartphone or your laptop and start looking at nastiness, right? You can watch movies that, that get you aroused and thinking improperly about the wrong kinds of things. That's not faithfulness. When the Bible gives a, a, a criteria for the the elders of the church, one of them is a one-woman man. We can interpret that as one at a time, which probably is not our best uh, interpretation of that, but it's, it's marital fidelity. It is marital 
faithfulness. I have eyes for my wife. I have desire for my wife. I have satisfaction in my wife. And that's it. That's real faithfulness. And beyond that, there's, there, there are other responsibilities that demonstrate faithfulness when your wife or your husband is sick. And it's day in and day out. And it's long and it's hard. It's exhausting. And they never seem to ever get any better. The faithful spouse is there. And they say, I feel weak. I feel, I feel empty. I don't, I don't have much left to give. I, I've gone this far. And there's nothing left. Folks, God can invest you with faithfulness. You need him. You need him when you are weary of this long, toilsome battle. There are many other ways you could talk about the husband-wife relationship regarding faithfulness. I think we've touched on it enough for now. How about parents toward children? Parents toward children. Hey, you know what? Kids, they're born as sinners. You don't have to teach them how to sin. You don't have to teach them how to whine, complain, have a hard time sharing. You don't have to teach them any of that stuff. That comes very easily. You try to train them. You try to teach them how to interact properly. You try to help them understand who God is and the saving work of Christ. You, you, you want to invest in them, the gospel, so they, they, their eternal soul is, is saved. And, and then you want to teach them how to be good human beings and how to treat their neighbors well and how to deal with conflict and all, all the things that you learned over however many years you've been alive and you want them to know when they're eight. I want them to know when they're eight. A kid at eight doesn't know what they don't know yet. Guess what? A lot of times you learn the hard way. You learn the hard way. It took you however long and you're still learning, right? I'm still learning. I wish I could tell you that I'm sinless. That would be Great if it were true, I'm not. I'm filled with sin. I'm not proud of that. I, I, don't, I don't glory in it and I don't accept it. But I sin. It stinks. But I know my own heart. I know my own struggles. I know my own weaknesses. I don't accept them. But I can't expect my child at age blank to know what I know and I don't even do it well. Faithfulness. So it brings us to the scripture text of, of Ephesians 6. Take a look at verse 4. Directed particularly at fathers, but I think you can, can easily apply this to moms as well. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You can just keep the process of nurturing going. You can't ensure their faithfulness. You can't ensure their obedience to the things of God. You can, you can make sure that things are right in your home. You can make sure that they don't do certain things in your home, but you can't change their heart. You wish you could. You wish you could have them believe all the things that you believe and experience the great joy of knowing Christ the way you do, but it can't happen from you. It has to happen inside of them. And so in the process, we have to learn to be faithful to our children, to love them, to patiently endure their learning process, to care for them, and to learn what does get under their skin, not so we can use it against them, but so we can get rid of that stupid thing. 
You've heard of a button pusher before? Some people love to push people's buttons. You see what that text says? If you find out what pushes their buttons, knock it off. Children, uh, parents to children. How about this? Children to parents. Put on your seatbelts, kids. Get verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you're, you may live long on the earth or in the, in the land. What's, what's the idea here? God has entrusted children to parents. Parents have a responsibility to children, and children have a responsibility to their parents. The first is obedience, and the second is honor. Honor, you can just use another word, respect. Submit. Surrender. Don't think, folks, because you're blank years old that you can stand up and look your mom or your dad eye to eye and say, no, I'm not doing that. No, I won't go there. No, I won't have any of that. No, that's not my way. No, that's not my God. Now, you can't make them, make them be Christians, right? But you can say, in my house, this is how we go. In my house, this is how we live. Young person, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what struggles are inside. You have struggles inside. There's no doubt. Every one of us struggle. I don't know what your struggle is, but you struggle with something. Let me encourage you. How you can deal with the conflict inside of your own soul when you are struggling with your parents because your parents don't make all the right choices and don't always say things the right way, right? I know I don't. Your responsibility, regardless of whether your parent says the right thing and does the right thing all the time, is to still have a respectful spirit. Is to still demonstrate before God that you recognize your place under your parents because you are under God. This passage is, is vitally important. It's so important that in the book of Thessalonians, excuse me, Titus, where, again, there is this passage of qualifications, it talks about having faithful children or believing children not known for insubordination. Now, that requirement is for the elder, right? But that doesn't make it an elder issue. It means this is the way that families are supposed to operate, having children that are faithful to the Lord, faithful to Scripture, faithful to what they know, understanding their responsibility and not accused of insubordination or disrespect. Faithfulness is demonstrated in our workplace. Faithfulness is to be demonstrated in our homes. Now, how, how is this whole passage couched? I like that term, couched. Don't, don't make you fall asleep or anything. The context of this in Ephesians 5.18, it says, And do not be drunk with wine wherein there is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's verse 18 of chapter 5. Verse 19 through 21 give us some results, results of being filled with the Spirit. There's rejoicing, there's, there's thanksgiving, there's submission, verse 21. And then he goes on to describe several relationships. Husbands to wives, Wives to husbands, I did that in reverse order. Children to parents, 
parents to children, um, employee to employer, employer to employee. He goes on and goes through all these relationships, but don't forget the context. Don't try to be the, the, the loving husband without the Spirit. Don't try to be the submissive wife without the Spirit. Don't try to be the obedient child without the Spirit. Don't try to be the great parent without the Spirit. Don't try to be the great employee without the Spirit. Great employer without the Spirit. You can do all kinds of activities that you know are, these are the good things to do. But if you want real faithfulness, remember we're talking about faithfulness not because we randomly came across my mind one day. We're in the midst of a study of the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. So it comes out of a relationship with the Spirit. We also see it in the home. Faithfulness, excuse me, in in the church, sorry. Faithfulness in the church. Take a look at Ephesians 4. We're almost finished. Verse 16. In verse 16, he concludes this subsection of the book where he's talking about the church, and he says this, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we cut into the context here. Just know this. This passage is talking about the church, those that have been called out of the world and into the body, and God says the church, each part, each one who is a, a, a born-again believer in a church is supposed to be working properly. Don't be that guy in the sideline saying, hey, you guys did a great job in that thing. And that thing, and that thing over there, you guys, they ought to do this, and they did a really good job with that. And those people, you notice this person's just a fanboy. They're on the outside, observing and being appreciative. That's great. The text is telling us that we're all supposed to be intimately involved. You know, we've come to a day and age, and it's been quite a while that we've been at this day and age, where people don't think the church is important. They just think, well, I can be a Christian um, and, and, and live my life outside of the church. Now, you can be a Christian. You can be. The church does not require in order to be saved. And a person who is saved is not, not saved by not going to church. But the Bible sees no one that's a believer being outside the church. The Bible sees believers in the church. It assumes this. It doesn't even say, hey, y'all ought to go to church now, you hear? Because it's assumed that a Christian goes to church that is part of a church because you've been saved out of the world and you sense, I've been rescued from this, this ungodly, unfaithful, crooked and perverse generation. I find my solace and my refuge in the people of God who worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Savior of my soul. The Bible assumes that it will be a relationship with the church. And it says in this passage that, that each part is to be working. And each part, when they're working, causes the body to grow in the church. Faithfulness. How about, how about faithfulness to our God? Last passage of Scripture for the morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You could preach a whole sermon just from this passage. I won't. I don't think. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. This is how one 
should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's a lot in this text. Let me just try to bring out just a couple of thoughts here. Servants of Christ, the, the, the word literally means under rower. Probably it brings to mind these Corinthian ships that had three decks of rowers underneath it. Maybe, I think. And probably the under rower was the bottom rung. It's a really cruddy situation. And I mean that, like, literally. Because you got people above you, and they're chained to their oar. And they got to do their stuff. Are you getting me? I'm at the bottom of the ship. And he says, we're servants of Christ. He says, essentially, pull your oar. Pull your oar. Just pull your oar. Why? Because you're a servant of Christ. It is required in stewards that a man or woman be found what? Faithful. Where does that faithfulness come from? It's from God. Listen carefully, please. If you are not faithful in your relationships... If we are not faithful in our relationships, listen carefully, we are not faithful. If we are not faithful, we're not walking empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are not displaying Jesus Christ. We are not imitating our Father. If we're not walking empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are wasting our time. God tells us to redeem the time, for the days are evil. This is only possible as we allow the Holy Spirit to produce real godliness in our lives. Tomorrow morning, you'll likely wake up. You'll wake up and the sun will rise. And you wait long enough, guess what's going to happen? The sun will set. You can count on it. What's behind this consistency of sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down? Now it's in your head. Sun up, sun down. I hope it's in your head later when you leave. Sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down. The world itself is sustained by the word of his power. God's faithfulness causes the sun to rise, for the sun to come out of its chamber as a bridegroom to run its race, 
it sets on the other side, guess what? It comes up again. It's because we're spinning, spinning, and spinning, and going around and around. And every year, it happens like clockwork because a faithful creator and a faithful sustainer makes it so. And just as he makes the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth operate in perfect faithfulness, so also he can enable his child to demonstrate his perfect faithfulness. But you and I, folks, need to surrender our heart to him and not accept something short of God's faithfulness. We see the extent of his faithfulness, and it, I, I don't know about you, I am just, it, it, it blows my mind. It takes my breath away to think about the, the faithfulness of God reaching to the clouds. It's truth. And that same faithfulness ought to be demonstrated in my life. And if it's not, I shouldn't say, well, I'm just, a, just an average guy. I stink like everybody else. That's not the response. It's, God, help me be faithful. Bring forth the fruit of your spirit. Help me to yield myself to you. I don't want to display Rob. Rob's got nothing to offer. Rob can't be a good husband, a really good father. Rob's not a good pastor. Rob's not a good student. Rob's not a good anything. I need you. Please, bring forth fruit that others will see you and your glorious kingdom. This is the point of the fruit of the Spirit, that people will see God. And today, it's about his faithfulness. Can God make his faithfulness displayed in your life? The question is, are you letting him? Let's pray together.